I feel like I need to get this out there right from the start. I was predestined to be post-millennial. <laughs> I, I, I know that I, I, I was because I tried so hard not to be. I remember when Hal Lindsey's books first came out, and I got them right away. I read them cover to cover multiple times, did Bible studies with them. I made the charts. I made the charts. <clears throat> I, uh, I can remember when Karen and I were first married, we, we always w- would try and make sure that we r- really could see each other clearly when we were at a flea market or something for fear that we might be separated at the moment of the rapture. I walked around a post one time, and she was panic-stricken. It's happened. He's gone, and I'm left behind. I I actually was Jerry Jenkins' editor for two books and was proud of it. (laughs) I knew Tim and Beverly LaHaye personally. We sat and and talked war stories. I actually was fearful of the killer bees, the cobra helicopters, the hitchhiking angels, the beast-coated social security checks, the whole shebang. The problem was I kept reading the Bible. And it messed up the whole system. So I want to warn you ahead of time, I'm not going to play fair because I was predestined. So this is not my fault. (laughs) But what what I want to do this morning is I want to um, tell a couple of stories from church history. Then I want to go through a list of 22 things that we need to remember, a double 11, Terry. 22 things that we need to keep in mind as we uh, study the scriptures and particularly as we think about the future in eschatology. Then I want to take us to the first couple of verses of Revelation chapter 1 and just look and see what it says in light of those 22 things that I will highlight. And then we'll conclude with another couple of stories from church history. So that's the plan for this talk. Uh, Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy, and thank you for the opportunity uh, for us uh, to weigh and consider uh, the glorious truth of the victory of Jesus Christ, uh, the power of the gospel, uh, the transformation that occurs uh, because uh, the dominion that is yours is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away. We thank you, Lord, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Why 1K was scary. As the year 1000 approached, the soothsayers came out. 
they began to tell stories and, and extrapolated prophecies from the scripture that the world was going to come to an end right at the dawning of midnight of the new millennium. The, the, the result was a tremendous amount of economic and cultural disruption in the two years leading up to Y1K. Yeah, kings and uh, nobles and princes tried to get their uh, houses in order and uh, uh, to be sure they were uh, ready to eat, drink, and be merry for the end was nigh unto them. As uh, the day approached, the, the soothsayers, the pastors, the bishops, uh, the Pope himself began to prepare themselves for the great day. But when, uh, uh, when New Year's Eve arrived, the churches were packed, uh, the bells were tolling, uh, the end was near, uh, the grand liturgies and the glorious processions began, and everyone waited for that moment. Uh, the choirs sang with a glorious uh, fervor as the moment arrived, and then finally the bells began to toll. One, two, three, all the way to 12. As they got to 11, the Pope, the, all of the bishops, the cardinals, they held their breath across all of Europe in churches, small and large, uh, people waited for the moment, and then nothing happened. They looked around at one another and sort of wondered, did the, did the bells toll a little early, or uh, we haven't invented daylight savings time yet, what, what's the deal? It was a tremendous wake-up call. It's really interesting. There was one noble who wrote several decrees to his people saying that it was all a bunch of nonsense. His name was Robert of Normandy. And throughout all of the Norman dominions, there was no panic and no fear and the result was that economic disruption that affected virtually all of the rest of Europe did not affect the Norman dominions. And in the years immediately after the year 1000, the Normans began to have an extraordinary flourishing. They wound up with colonial possessions throughout the Italian peninsula, which they would control for the next uh, 450 years. And then, of course, there's 1066 and all that. <laughs> the thing is, ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. And the world is shaped by them all. In the heart of the Kremlin complex... Within Moscow's Red Square stands the St. Basil Cathedral. It's an iconic and much imitated emblem of Russian culture. At the center of the Slobislav Palace complex within Prague's Castle Square stands the St. Vitus Cathedral. 
Likewise, an iconic and much imitated emblem of Eastern European culture. The two churches could not be more different. From their architecture and history to their patrons and liturgies, uh, from the worldviews that they portray, the churches are a study in stark contrasts. Together, they provide a fitting metaphor for the polarized story of Christianity through the ages. The the strikingly colorful onion domes and spires of St. Basil Cathedral were built to commemorate uh, Tsar Ivan the Terrible's victory over the Kazan Tartars, shaped like the flames of a holy bonfire rising into the sky. The church's ten chapels were constructed between 1555 and 1561 over the grave of a venerated uh, local saint, Basil or Vasily Blazinovich of Moscow. Uh, Basil uh, was um, uh, perhaps one of the least likely patrons of any church anywhere in the world. He was uh, what is referred to in Russian Orthodox tradition as a holy fool. A contemporary of Ivan the Terrible and a Muscovite patriot, he walked through the streets of Moscow, ranting and raving, uh, murmuring, always stark naked, even in the winter. The uh, holy fools, like uh, Basil, were essential fixtures in nearly every Russian village, town, and city from the 14th all the way through the 20th century. They played an important role in uh, the popular Russian Orthodox worldview. Uh, They were highly regarded as holy men and mystical seers, even though they behaved like madmen and were anything but saintly in their habits or their personal character. Not surprisingly, they figure prominently in Russian literature, uh, from the colorful folklore and fairy tales to the epic novels of Pushkin, Pasternak, uh, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy. According to historian Ua Thompson, uh, those strange-looking and strange-acting holy fools were an ancient and cherished tradition in Russia. They were treated as wards of their towns, uh, receiving food and shelter from pious locals. In exchange for their kindness, the holy fool often abused his benefactors, uh, or at best treated them with indifference. Uh, But it was believed that he possessed mysterious powers and was in some way in contact with the supernatural. It was also assumed that he was clairvoyant uh, and his advice on matters personal and social was eagerly sought. Uh, He had uh, the ability uh, to to use this psychic power uh, to evoke uh, respect and fear in all of um, the communities in which he dwelt. In the 15th and 16th century, the holy fools were as famous for their nakedness as they were for their mad ravings, supposedly signs of their deep otherworldly spirituality. 
but uh, at other times, the, they had outlandish customs of layered rags, torn and dirty, often covered with bells, strings, trinkets, and other attention getters. Naked or clothed, the, the fools carried pounds of iron on their bodies in the form of chains and manacles. Uh, uh, some of them wore iron or copper rings or even iron headgear. Holy fools uh, were both revered and feared uh, as the ultimate mortal uh, uh, moral authorities uh, treated with more respect than even monks, priests, bishops, patriarchs, uh, and popes in the church. Uh, they were welcomed into the great noble manners and the most humble peasant huts. Uh, the outrageous Basil of Moscow uh, like his fellow holy fool, uh, Gregory Rasputin, three centuries later, uh, has long occupied an important place in Russian popular memory, though largely unknown and certainly not venerated anywhere else in the world. Uh, Basil, like Rasputin, gained a tremendous reputation entirely because of his influence on the royal household of the Tsar. Ivan the Terrible venerated Basil and his, uh, made him his official court shaman, uh, often uh, weighing his ravings over and against all of his most tr trusted uh, diplomats. Uh, the feverish, dizzying, madcap architecture of St. Basil Cathedral is an apt monument to Basil and to the place of the holy fool in Russian society and life. Uh, the visual representation of a holy fool's topsy-turvy worldview became a model uh, for Russian architecture and particularly Russian ecclesiastical architecture in all the years afterwards, including the uh, iconic Kostroma uh, Cathedral, the Vitraga uh, Church, and St. Sophia in Kiev. The contrast with the cathedral in Prague is striking. It couldn't be more dramatic. Officially named the Metropolitan Cathedral of Saints Vitus, Wenceslas, and Adelbert, the uh, ornate complex of chapels and spires, uh, rotundas and naves, was first established in 930 by the famed good king Wenceslas. Uh, it's... Uh, it was added onto Romanesque and, uh, and later Baroque uh, uh, constructions, uh, made it an iconic image of Western architecture. And it became the royal crypt, uh, the, uh, the crown treasury, and served as the a source of uh, pilgrimage uh, ambitions uh, to the land's patron saint, uh, Wenceslas. Uh, the papal court in Avignon appointed the first ma uh, master builder, Matthias of Arras, but he died before he could execute a full plan. And, um, and a local stonemason replaced him, Peter Parlet. He introduced a bold and innovative design of interlocking and zigzagging networks of vaults, and, um, and his plan which was eventually carried out, 
uh, was a stunning combination of mathematical precision, engineering prowess, and creative uh, rationality. It, it was the chief inspiration of virtually all of the major cathedrals that would be built throughout the rest of Europe uh, in the succeeding centuries. Uh, Though construction was not completed until 1928, it was nevertheless a picture of the vision of hope, uh, the rationality of the gospel, uh, the comprehension that the gospel would eventually go to the very ends of the earth. Uh, It was uh, not just the design of the cathedral that proved to be influential, though, The church's patrons uh, were equally important in shaping the worldview uh, of the region. St. Vitus was a Sicilian martyr during the third century of the persecution of Diocletian. He was known for his charity, uh, for saving children that were destined for infanticide. Uh, He's remembered in church history as one of the 14 holy helpers. St. Adalbert uh, was the Bishop of Prague, <clears throat> renowned as a hymn writer. Uh, his hymns sing of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over every adversary. And uh, his most glorious uh, hymn is called The Footstool of Christ, which exalts in uh, Christ making his enemies his footstool. He was martyred uh, during a mission uh, bringing the gospel to the Baltic Prussians. And of course, good King Wenceslas was likewise a martyr to the faith. His generosity and works of mercy are celebrated every year on the feast of St. Stephen. Charles Dickens famously opened his novel of the French Revolution saying, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. But we had everything before us, Uh, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, Uh, we were all going directly to the other way. In short, uh, the period was so like the present period uh, that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. He was reminding us that some stories can only be told by means of stark contrast. Some stories require the juxtaposition of opposites in order for us to fully grasp their meaning and significance. Dissimilarity and disparity then become the organizing principles for comprehension and clarity. When it comes to biblical eschatology, that kind of distinctiveness is essential for us. We need to not only proclaim what it is that we believe, but why it is that we don't believe what we don't believe. The story of Christianity in Europe that really was essentially a tale of two cathedrals. 
It's the tale of two empires, the Habsburgs and the Romanovs. It's the tale of two faiths, the Orthodox and the Latin. It's the tale of two worldviews, mystical and empirical. It's the tale of two rivers, the Danube and the Volga. It's the tale of two alphabets, uh, the Cyrillic and the Latin. It's the tale of two histories, East and West. It's the tale of dramatic contrast between optimism and pep pessimism, between madness and clarity, uh, between defeat and victory. It, to tell the story uh, requires looking first one way and then in quite the opposite direction. So what I'd like to do is, with that kind of contrast in mind, I'd like to give you uh, just 22 essential principles of the world of eschatology. And necessarily, we're going to venture into hermeneutics and a bit into history along the way. And then I want to try and tie those 22 principles to the opening verses of the book of Revelation. So the question before us that has been before us for a generation or more is, are we living in the last days? Are we witnessing uh, the signs of the end? I have a dear friend who is a never-Trumper. He's absolutely convinced uh, that we have the Antichrist in the White House. And I'm thinking to myself, is that the best the devil can do? We've seen the charts, we've read the novels, uh, we've heard the speculations. Some of us have even been brave enough to watch the movies. How are we to discern where we stand in the grand scheme of history? What are we to make of the signs of the times? How are we to interpret the big events of our day on and off of Facebook? What are we to make of the fact that amidst all of the doomsaying that the gospel is good news, that it is full of hope for all of eternity, that it is full of hope for the here and now. So here are 22 simple reminders. First, remember that the one central story of the Bible, the whole Bible, is just about one thing. The pattern of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration runs throughout the whole of the Old and New Testaments to assure us that our God is sovereign and that his purposes will be fulfilled. Second, remember that the Bible is its own best commentary. The word interprets itself. Scripture explains Scripture. Uh, so when we come to difficult passages, that we, we the ought to look to the rest of Scripture to explain those difficult passages, not to the latest legislation coming down uh, in Washington or the latest uh, Supreme Court ruling. Third, we must always remember to read individual passages in context. Textual, literary, symbolic, historical, cultural, grammatical, and theological context. Four, we have to remember that all biblical revelation is actually intended to reveal. 
not to conceal. It's not a trick. It's not a game. It's not some smoke and mirrors, Gnostic knowledge thing. The, the, the purpose of all biblical revelation is intended to reveal. So we should always look for the most obvious literary sense of a text. Remember, fifth, that all Scripture is inspired and superintended by the Holy Spirit. So every little detail matters. I love in Doug's book, Heaven Misplaced, that he has a whole chapter basically about one word. And it's a word that we would typically just skim right on over. The Apostle Paul makes much of this word. And in the Great Commission, this word is the pivot point that helps us understand the whole thing. It's the word, therefore. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans builds this incredible vision leading to this glorious crescendo. Here is the truth for those of us who are separated from God by our sin, falling short But with the hope of redemption in Jesus Christ, and he develops the themes of justification by faith and the double imputation of Christ putting on us his righteousness and him taking upon his shoulders our iniquities. And he finally gets to this glorious pinnacle where he's portrayed the the hope of all eternity. And in chapter 12, he says, therefore... I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of everything that Christ has done, in light of the glories of our redemption, Here's the job. Therefore. Doug points out in um, Heaven Misplaced uh, that in the Great Commission we have that same kind of pivot point. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. He declares it to his disciples. And so he turns to them and he says, therefore, go. In light of the fact that the work is done, the authority is vested, the throne is secure, in light of the fact that this is a blood-bought world, go. Go make disciples. Go teach everything that I've commanded you. Therefore, go. That's just remembering that all Scripture is inspired, superintended by the Holy Spirit, and every detail matters. Sixth, remember that Scripture has only one meaning but multiple applications. So it's important to distinguish between indicatives and imperatives. When the Bible says, do this, we should just do this. Uh, But if the Bible is saying, look at this, we're just supposed to look at this. Seventh, 
Uh, remember that we read translations of the Bible. The all languages have strengths, weaknesses, and peculiarities. And moving from Greek and Hebrew to one of our modern languages, uh, such as 21st century American, yo, uh, will always require some additional scrutiny and study. Uh, we, we have to make sure that we're paying attention. Uh, I, I oftentimes use the ESV. Oh, woe is me. And that means that I've got to pay really close attention when the ESV just decides that verse 14 doesn't go here. Paying attention is a part of the process. We have to pay attention with the King James Version and with the New American Standard and all of the rest. We have to pay attention. Eighth, remember that we must always interpret experience in the light of Scripture, not the other way around, including the experience of the whole flow of church history. Remember, ninth, uh, that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is revealed in the New. But conversely, there are times uh, when you're reading the New Testament, and you have to go back to the Old Testament uh, to identify just exactly what it is uh, that is being referred to in uh, these odd comments. Uh, again, Doug points out the fact uh, in uh, Heaven Misplaced uh, that the uh, Oftentimes when we read uh, Paul interpreting the passages from Isaiah or from Deuteronomy, uh, we're thinking to ourselves, now that's not the way I would have interpreted that. So we have to go back and forth between the Old and the New Testament to read them in light of one another. Uh, Tenth, remember that there is nothing new under the sun. So beware of innovative or novel interpretations of Scripture. Uh, steer clear of the new discoveries in biblical revelation or uh, textual criticism. We have a rich legacy of wisdom that is passed down uh, to us uh, throughout uh, the whole of church history, so we should consult good commentaries wherever possible and look to the old paths more often than not. Uh, one of the things that Karen and I oftentimes do on Saturday afternoons is I'll just do a quick preview of the sermon. And uh, if I've got something peculiar, which I did last Sunday, I had a, a, a radical debunking of the normal view of the cleansing of the temple. And uh, she looks at me, she squints her eyes, and she says, now, did you find that somewhere else, or are you just coming up with that? It's a great question. We should constantly wrestle with that question. But Eleven, remember that we should always read Scripture prayerfully submitting to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It seems obvious, uh, but the truth is that we are sinners, that we have presuppositions. Just like Ivan the Terrible had this presupposition that someone who was mad enough to walk around Moscow, whether in Russia or in Idaho, naked and raving uh, with uh, bells tied to his hair, 
he had this presupposition that somehow this madness had to be spiritual. We've got the same kind of superstition in our day. It's just instead of walking around raving in the snow naked, we walk around raving in laser lights and skinny jeans. Twelve. Jesus warned his disciples against undue eschatological speculation or fixation. He did this over and over and over again. In Matthew chapter 24, in Luke chapter 13, uh, we see the apostle Paul uh, warning the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, We see Jesus uh, declaring it in Acts chapter 1. Uh, We see it all over again in Revelation chapter 16. Beware of eschatological speculation and fixation. We have a job to do. Our job is not to figure it all out. Our job is to go and work it all out. 13, the day of the Lord is mentioned or alluded to at least 226 times in the Old Testament and 19 times in the New Testament. But as, uh, as one of my favorite characters in all of cinema would say, you keep using that word, but it does not mean what I think you think it means. <laughs> but these last days, 14, are not the end times. We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and in 1 John chapter 2. And next, we have to remember that traditionally, eschatological theology is confined to the seven endings. These are death, the intermediate state, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the day of judgment, hell, and the new heavens and the new earth. It's fascinating to me that when we read books of eschatology from any time, from the 19th all the way through the 21st century, they skip most of these and focus solely on uh, the fascinations of the return of Christ. And next, uh, we have to remember that millennium is only mentioned in six verses in a single chapter out of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, The battle of Armageddon is never actually fought, according to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and Revelation chapter 16. And there is not a single Antichrist, but many, according to uh, 1 John chapter 2 and 2 John uh, verse 7. Those who have the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John chapter 4 verse 3. Uh, Next, we have to remember that the idea of rapture is not actually mentioned. Instead, it's extrapolated uh, from a handful of isolated proof texts, 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew chapter 24. If anything, the idea is more applicable to the enemies of God uh, than the remnant of God, as we see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 and 46. So the whole Larry Norman thing, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to let that song go. 
Most of the prophecies of impending judgment mentioned in the New Testament were slated for fulfillment very soon in that very generation. According to Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and as we'll see in a moment, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, The Greek word for soon literally means soon. Next, we need to remember that the special status of Israel is a mystery in the sense that God's promises have been entrusted to the church, the new Israel, and yet the Jews remain a central focus of God's redemptive work in the world, as we see in Romans chapter 11. Next, we need to remember that there are no new or mysterious symbols that are used in the book of Revelation. Instead, the book's a book draws from the rich literary and theological imagery of the Old Testament. Um, the truth is, is that when uh, you read the book of Revelation, that we immediately see that it is a commentary and an illumination of books like Ezekiel and portions of Daniel. Uh, we need to remember that all Bible prophecy has an immediate context and fulfillment and an ongoing context and fulfillment. It reflects the already and the not yet of Christ's glorious work of redemption. And finally, we need to remember that there are still many events in the victory of Christ and the gospel which have yet to be fully fulfilled and satisfied. There are outstanding promises yet for us and for the future. In the Olivet Discourse uh, of Matthew chapter 24, we have uh, a, a remarkable teaching from the Lord Jesus. Following his prediction uh, that the temple in Jerusalem would soon be destroyed, his nervous disciples uh, began to ask him a series of questions. Uh, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus responds by telling them that they have nothing to fear, Matthew 24, verse 6. They were instead to be on guard against those who would unduly alarm and deceive them, Matthew 24, 4. In spite of a spate of wars, rumors of wars, famines, Uh, pestilences, earthquakes, tribulation, and persecutions, they were to rest assured. In fact, he told them that these signs were just the beginning of the beginning. He described them as birth pangs. Any mama will tell you that birth pangs are not the end. They're not even the beginning of the end. Birth pangs are the beginning of the beginning. Instead of focusing on these subjective and often misleading signs of the times, Jesus directed their attention to the great task of preaching the gospel to all the nations. Although his discourse is filled with specific portending prophecies, as the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD ultimately proved, the primary thrust of Christ's message was that eschatology is essentially ethical and it is only secondarily uh, predictive. 
it is revealed by the good providence of God to provoke God's people to their responsibilities, to faithfully carry out the Great Commission, to diligently build up the church, uh, to pray without ceasing, to engage in spiritual warfare, uh, to serve the hurting and meet the needs of the innocent, uh, to walk in holiness and to live with one another in faith, hope, and love. In short, eschatology is a prod in the hands of God to incite the church to do right when all of the rest of the world has gone wrong. That's what eschatology is for. And all of this is made beautifully evident in Revelation chapter 1, just the Uh, First few uh, opening verses, here we read, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known uh, by sending his angel uh, to his servant John, who bore witness uh, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Uh, this is um, a, a, a clear declaration of what eschatology is for, what revelation is for. Uh, Verse 1, Jesus uh, makes all of this absolutely evident because he has uh, received that which will show his servants the things that must soon take place. Um, Verse 1, we're we're told uh, that he made it known by sending his angel. Uh, The King James actually uh, is more accurate uh, where it says... uh, He sent and signified it uh, by his angel. Uh, The Greek word here is the word from which we get the word signify or semiotics. It literally means uh, that this is given in signs uh, to signify, to symbolize all of the things that are about to come. Uh, In other words, this is not simply history told in advance but it is a book full of signs, uh, rich theology, uh, literary and uh, and, and beautifully poetic language. It is uh, not uh, reductionistic. It is not rationalistic or prosaic. It is weighty poetry and music. It's the weighty poetry and music of creation and of its creator. In verse 3, Uh, we're told that that, that there are beatitudes, uh, rich beatitudes, uh, blessings for both the reader uh, and for the hearers and blessings for the doers, those who keep these words. Uh, John uh, makes it clear from the beginning that his book is intended to be a revelation, verse 1, a revealing or Uh, unveiling. It's not supposed to be a riddle or a mystery or an enigma. Uh, Specifically, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a book that shows us Christ in his glory. This is a book that shows us uh, Christ uh, ruling with his good providence, sitting on the 
uh, right hand of the Father with the iron scepter in his hand and, and the nations at, as his footstool. That's what this book is about. Uh, the uh, revelation comes from the hand of the one who is revealed. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show. And the revealer is revealed in the context of the things that must soon take place. Uh, the Greek word is takos. Uh, it literally means a short span of time uh, or without delay or suddenly or, or promptly or quickly or speedily or readily or soon. It's a word that's used seven other times in the New Testament. In Luke 18, it's used to describe how justice must come speedily. In Acts chapter 12, it's used to describe how Peter got up quickly. In Acts 22, it's used to describe how the apostles made haste. In Romans 16, it's used to declare that God will soon crush Satan. Therefore, Revelation is not concerned with either the scope and sequence of world history or the end of the world, the events that were in the very near future of those who were reading these words, in the very near future of John himself. The idea that this is a book about Jesus is reinforced in verse 2. Uh, Jesus shows us the things that must soon take place, thus revealing himself. The whole rest of the first chapter is really the unveiling of Christ as the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He's come in glory. He, he walks on the clouds. He's radiant in his splendor. He walks around the candlesticks, and he declares his sovereignty over all things. That's what this book is about. Uh, he bears witness uh, to this witness, John does, um, and he bears testimony to this testimony. Uh, this is a book about the glory of Christ, and that should fill us with great hope. It's about him, not about us. It's about his time, uh, his kingdom time, uh, not our time and times. Thus, we can go forth with great confidence doing our job, uh, laying hold of our tasks, regardless of what the portents may be in our culture. I don't know what it's like here, uh, but among Christians in the South, the buckle of the Bible belt, there's a tremendous amount of fear. Fear about the times that we live in. Fear about the disintegration of the family. Uh, fear about the polarization of our culture. Uh, fear about uh, the, the way that we should live in this world. It's almost as if the, the basils of Moscow have somehow come and inhabited the imaginations of Christians all across the land. But when we read the scriptures, what we see is a totally different picture. God is in control. His purposes will not be frustrated. His glory has been made manifest. Read it and be blessed. Revelation here is also remarkably 
in the context of worship. Virtually the whole book is a worship service in heaven. Out of worship flows the transformation of the world. The out of worship is made manifest the victory of Christ over the world. The out of worship comes the glorious eschaton of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the, uh, the interesting thing in verse 3 is that the language that's used here uh, literally uh, means that when we read, we are uh, to rehearse, to recite, to read aloud. These are truths not to be secreted away in the closet. These are truths to be proclaimed boldly before all of the world, but particularly in the church so that we can know that his promises are sure that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. From the congregation in the host, and all of those who obey or practice or enact uh, these things, there is blessing. Interestingly, the language that's used here is actually the language of liturgy. Liturgy shapes worldview, uh, molds the soul, steals the resolve, and sends the disciples to the hurting, to the needy, to the despised, to the rejected, to the unloved, to the unlovely, and thus the world is changed. Something about Prague, where a very different kind of cathedral was built. Something about the worldview that emerged there. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Uh, there were were two remarkable heroes of faith that emerged seemingly out of nowhere in Prague. Uh, John Wycliffe in England threatened the very citadel of papal dogmatism by appealing to the Bible and its prophecies as the primary authority, asserting every man's right to examine the Bible for himself he had uh, contended uh, for uh, the literal sense of of the scriptures. About the same time that Wycliffe and uh, his Lollards were working to recover the gospel message in England, Jan Milich was engaged in a similar enterprise in Moravia and uh, Bohemia. He was born in the Czech uh, village of Kromoraz, just outside of Prague. Milich was ordained to the priesthood sometime around 1350. Within a very few years, he gained renown as a powerful and influential preacher, uh, reformer, and organizer. Uh, Living through the tumultuous days of the 14th century. You know the 14th century. It was grand old time. Black death, 100 years war, the, the, uh, the Babylonian captivity of the church, uh, the great schism. I mean, this is, the, these were great days. Uh, living through these uh, tumultuous days, uh, Milich saw the wrenching cataclysms of all of these events. 
Uh, the glories of early medievalism uh, very nearly collapsed under the weight of apocalyptic devastation. Wars and rumors of wars, famines and plagues, and natural disasters, unnatural ambitions seemed to conspire together against all hope. But as bad as those days were for the rest of Europe, they were actually halcyon days for Bohemia. Charles IV was the first king of Bohemia to serve as the Holy Roman Emperor. He was a member of the House of Luxembourg, and uh, his uh, father's side of uh, the Czech house uh, and, uh, and his mother's side, uh, both with long lines uh, in, uh, in the royalty. He helped turn the city of Prague into a cultural, commercial, and architectural showcase. He was the one who, who actually... Uh, made the most progress on the cathedral, and he built the famous Charles Bridge uh, across the river in the heart of Prague. He made the University of Prague into one of the most foremost institutions of learning anywhere in the world. It was Charles who commissioned uh, the iconic towers of the cathedral. Uh, it was Charles who engaged the great Peter Parley to design the steeply pitched roofs uh, the peaked spires and the vast rotundas that still define uh, the city's skyline. Following his father's death in 1346 at the Battle of Crecy, uh, Charles was crowned king of Bohemia. Later that same year, the prince electors chose him as the king of the Romans in 1355. His royal prerogative expanded uh, to include uh, all of the Italies and uh, the scepter of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, then with his coronation as the king of Burgundy in 1365, he gained virtual hegemony over the European continent, establishing his capital at Prague. He lent the city unprecedented wealth, power, and influence. Uh, beginning in 1358, Jan Milic served as the registrar and chaplain in the imperial chancery of Charles, accompanying the emperor on all of his diplomatic missions across Europe. Uh, he, um, he was uh, a remarkable champion of the poor and transformed Bohemia uh, with a gospel worldview. Despite uh, this unprecedented position of authority in 1363, Milich resigned from all of his appointments and preferments. Uh, he determined to devote the rest of his life uh, to uh, simple gospel preaching and discipleship. He gathered around himself a small band of scholars, teaching them the great Christian classics in Latin and Greek. He preached in small chapels and tabernacles to the ordinary people of Prague, always in the vernacular Czech and German languages. He became quite conspicuous for his commitment to simple living, even apostolic poverty. He undertook a radical reform of the ill-famed, sordid uh, Bernaski Street in the city's old town quarter. There he established schools, convents, preaching chapels for the poor, the Nazareth house for rehabilitated prostitutes, New Jerusalem for the education of the poor, and the Bethlehem chapel for the proclamation of the gospel. There, starting in 1369, he preached daily uh, in the magnificent Tyne church towering over the town square. He fought 
uh, forthrightly against the corruptions of the medieval church. He called for scriptural reform. He advocated vernacular worship and preaching, access to the Bible, uh, orthodox uh, doctrinal distinctives. And he gathered around himself a group of young men that he trained and equipped. Uh, Two of them uh, were Jerome of Prague and Jan Hus. Ideas have consequences. Uh, shortly after uh, Hus and Jerome uh, were martyred at the Council of Constance in 1414, they, uh, a, a remarkable Reformation movement began in the city of Prague. The first Protestant church uh, was established uh, just 22 years after Hus's martyrdom. And that Protestant church that had this rich, long tradition that endured all the way up to the Battle of White Mountain uh, when the Habsburgs decided to crush uh, this seething movement uh, for fear that the Lutherans and the Bohemians would unite and thus strangle the Habsburg ambitions at hegemony. It was during that time that but one of the disciples of Hus, Jan Comenius, began to envision a picture of, of gospel victory across the world. This picture of gospel victory was woven into a curriculum that became the basis of the curriculum of Cambridge and Oxford under the sponsorship of Oliver Cromwell, as well as under Cotton Mather, the standard for the curriculum at Harvard. Out of Prague, a a worldview literally swept across uh, the whole of the earth. The the, the Puritans were trained in this theology. Uh, The early American pioneers were trained in this theology. Uh, The Great Awakening sprang up uh, because of a result of uh, this theology. Ideas have consequences. Two cathedrals, two worldviews, two distinctions we get to decide which pathway we will walk in. Uh, J.D. Bernal has said, there are only two false futures that can be imagined by the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three enemies of the soul. One is the future of desire. The other is the future of fate. Only the scriptures afford us an alternate view. It's a view of joy and peace and deliverance. It's a a perspective that sets the captives free. It's what the world needs. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the glory of optimillennialism. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, for the greatness and the glory of the victory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. We do pray that you would enable us to walk with your very great and precious promises, the promise that you have made to us eternal life and great hope. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.